I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. What does it mean to experience diversity within the mass? More specifically, how do our cultural experiences and backgrounds, maybe even our preferences or the things that we're used to, how can that inform our worship? Should it? And how does it do it well? And what does it actually teach all of us in the body of Christ about one another? Right? Christ prays in the Garden of Gethsemane for unity in the body of Christ, that all may be one, which is a distinct challenge in a world where the othering of one another is the commonplace default. What differences does that person have in comparison to me? Whether it be cultural background, skin color, socioeconomic background. What do I believe, what do they believe that unites us? And then what is different about how we approach the way we worship? And how can those cultural differences from Ireland to Africa and every place in between, how do those cultural differences factor into the great beauty of worship that we are called to really lean into? Every single mass doesn't have to look the exact same. The, the bones, of course, are the same. The structure is the same. The responses are the same. But the music, the postures, sometimes even the way the community gathers before and after, that all factors into how that Sunday experience, how that Sunday mass transforms us. And talking about cultural diversity and the gift of diversity in worship requires that every single one of us, regardless of race, religion, or creed even, take a step back, zoom out, 10,000-foot view, look at the way that what we believe and where we came from and who we love and even what we look like, how all of that factors into our worship. I wanted to sit down with a good friend of mine, Father Ajani Gibson, a priest of the Archdiocese of New Orleans, a baby priest, in fact, just ordained a little under a year about his experience as a black Catholic priest in the Archdiocese of New Orleans in a dominantly black Catholic parish and how cultural diversity factors into the worship in a beautiful, fruitful, life-giving way and how every single one of us need to work to ensure that there is cultural representation within our worship, specifically within the Mass, the source and summit of our faith. Father Johnny shares with us a bit about his vocation story. He shares with us a bit about how his parish, St. Peter Claver, in New Orleans works and, and, and the beautiful gift that they bring to the community as a whole and offers us some challenging words of encouragement to recognize that it is through diversity that we are strengthened, even within the Mass. This conversation is part of our Ave Explore series on the Mass. You can find everything we're creating over at AveMariaPress.com, Instagram Live Conversations, other podcast episodes, articles, amazing things just for you, all for free. You can find everything at AveMariaPress.com. Click around, find everything that we've made. We'd love it also if you make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss any episode ever. But for right now, we'd love it if you'd sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father Ajani Gibson about diversity and cultural expression within the Mass. Well, Father Ajani, welcome to Ave Explorers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate yeah. it. So I will will share with the listeners. We have a mutual friend in my. I'm going to call him our our Uncle Michael, Parent Michael, because he's my <laughs> daughter's godfather, and she's starting to say Parent, which from a little tiny Cajun baby sounds 
precious and adorable. And we have a mutual friend in Father Michael, and we both live in Louisiana. We're like three and a half hours away. So it's it's a great joy to get to see you, my friend, and to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you are, and then we'll we'll get into your vocation story a little bit. Awesome. Yes, it's 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 great. It's great to, to be here and what an opportunity it is for us to just to to celebrate together. So I'm Father Johnny Gibson. I am a priest of the Archdiocese of New Orleans, newly ordained. Well, uh, the newly newly part has got to shift in, in a little bit. Completing <laughs> my first year of priesthood. Wow. Kind of crazy to yeah. think about that, right? But in my first year of priesthood, assigned to St. Peter Claver Catholic Church here in the Archdiocese, which just so happens to be my home parish as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've gotten to spend my first year as a priest, not only in the, the heart of New Orleans, the place that I love so much, but in my home parish, the place where my faith was uh, grown and nurtured, but where my vocation was truly sparked. And so it has been an incredible first year of figuring out how to be a priest of Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. What drew you to the priesthood, Father? Which is such a big question, but... You grew up in New Orleans, you know, a, a good hometown boy. Um, you've got you've got the New Orleans drawl, which I love. <laughs> we have more of a twang on my side of the state, so I love I love hearing that New Orleans accent. But as a kid growing up in New Orleans, what was it that that drew you to wanting to become a priest? So it was always something that was in my heart. I tell a story like this: uh, the first time I said yes to. Being a priest was, I was five years old. I was sitting outside of the Daily Mass Chapel at my elementary school. And there was a gentleman who was uh, coming out of Mass. And he saw me sitting there and he saw this five-year-old and said, what are you doing? Uh, why are you sitting there? And of yeah. course, me being me, like, that's a stupid question. I'm watching Mass. Like, why? like what are you doing, right? <laughs> And then he, he he thought about it for a little bit. And then he asked me, do you want to be a priest? And of course, I'm like, five-year-old me? Yeah, I want to be a priest. Um, I was also like the little kid who was a priest for Halloween, right? I, I celebrated mass with my stuffed animals. That was just, it was just something that was always there in my heart. Yeah, I got in a lot of trouble of baptizing my stuffed animals. Yeah. <laughs> my Sacramental life. Has, <laughs> All the way through. <laughs> she, she still has enough forgiven me, but, but that's okay. We're working <laughs> on it. But it was just always something in my heart. And growing up at St. Peter Cleaver, um, the first image really of priesthood that I got to see was my, my pastor, Father Michael Shaw. And I just was always captivated by sort of like just this larger than life persona, if you will, that came when he celebrated mass. And that was just, that like it drew me in. And the more and more I I got to interact with priests through school, through church, my dad by profession is a funeral director. And so um, I got to interact with all kinds of priests and to be exposed to priests through, through the funeral home. Like this is fascinating to me, mm-hmm. right? To see these different men in, in New Orleans by the grace of God, to be able to see uh, men of different cultures and different backgrounds, but also of different ages. And they live at church, right? <laughs> so little little Johnny's like, ah, people live at church and they enjoy <laughs> it. 
that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. And it, it really, it drew me in. In many ways, seeing these priests, especially in the Black community, who uh, not only like had a love for the people of God there, but just a love for Jesus Christ and they were really on fire. It's like, oh, okay. Mm. I might be able to, to, to dig it. Now, that wasn't always the, no, that, that sentiment wasn't always there. Trust me, there were much of, of my middle school and high school into college years was this sort of fighting what was the inevitable, right? Fighting what was already said yes to, this sort of compromise, Lord, we can uh, we can do the church thing, but the priesthood thing, not so much, right? Um, I, I will do, I will minister, I will I will do, I will serve faithfully at the altar. I will do CYO. I will do all of these things, do national conferences, all this stuff. But if you call me to be a priest, that's really funny. <laughs> you, you've lost your mind. When the time came, and I'm grateful, again, that I've, for the entirety of my life, had been surrounded by many good, faithful, holy priests, and then as I've gotten older to form these very um, strong relationships with, with some, of, uh, some of our bishops, they've always been not only fathers to me, um, but, but sources of inspiration and encouragement. And when the time came for me to really, to really make a decision, the Lord used them quite well. I will always remember the, the day, it was the Friday before Memorial Day, 2017, when I did, made the decision to enter the seminary, and it was because I could not come up with any other reasons mm-hmm. not to go. I, I ran <laughs> out of excuses. I, yeah. I had a list of, of all of the reasons why I could not be a priest, why I couldn't go to seminary, why the Lord is crazy for calling me. Priest after priest, my vocations director, my bishop, all had like knocked down that list, and I literally could not come up with any other excuse. I told my vocation story at my diaconal parish in Pius my first week in there. And one of the uh, parishioners came out of mass and he said to me, well, Deacon, you know, you could have always told them that you were Jewish. And I, <laughs> and I just, I, like, it took, I, I paused. I could have, but it still wouldn't have made sense, right? Because I, yeah. <laughs> like, I was doing too much for the church right. <laughs> for that to even work. Not having any other excuse, not and not having any other excuse to not be a priest, to not say yes. Um, the Lord reminded me I had already said yes, mm-hmm. already had answered yes in my heart. And this is what he had created me for, called me to. And now for a year, really like diving into it in a real way. And I can see, it's like, okay, I see what you're trying to do, Lord. <laughs> yeah, the slow burn, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you you entered in 20 so that was 2017 you entered the fall of 2017 and yes. you ap- applied obviously for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. So I always you know I've got a number of priest friends across the country and I've got priests who are Dominican and you know priest friends who are Benedictines and I've got a couple yeah. Franciscans in my pocket and like you know I've got I've got priest friends of different flavors but they're all going to they're going to resist the, if they hear this podcast. My favorite is when I find a guy who goes, you know, full on, like I'm staying home, you know, like it's almost harder because <laughs> my father Michael and I have had this conversation. Like part of me still sees Michael Beverung as my youth group kid, Michael. 
And like, I am happy to receive communion from him. And I am obviously <laughs> made him the godfather of my child. Confession? Oh, heck no. Like, I, it's like, nah, we haven't gotten there yet. Like, I still see my, my, my friend Michael. Um, but like, there's this, this real desire. And I think it's quite beautiful that you want to commit to your home, right? Like, I'm going to serve my people. Like, I'm going to serve, because that's yeah. a beautiful component of the priesthood. Like, you, you, you don't work for us, but like, you work for the people of God. And there's a, a a true sacrifice of I'm going to invest in a community, a community that knows me, a community I've grown up in. You've got the unique opportunity to even be in the parish where you were formed. What was it about specifically that diocesan priesthood that drew you in and, and who maybe helped you in those early days of discernment and figuring out like this is where I fit? And then, of course, being mm-hmm. at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, in the heart of New Orleans, right, right on Carrollton. Like what what was that like? Yeah. So one of the things, at least for me growing up my parents were very big on us giving back to the community in any mm-hmm. any capacity right wherever you have been to give back so you know new orleans has huge high school culture like yes we love that you go off to college get your graduate degrees right. and doctors and stuff but when people people in new orleans they ask you where you went to school they ask you where you went to high school, right? Yeah. So I want to. I'm a gra- a proud graduate of Saint Augustine High School, yeah. which is one of our our Black Catholic high schools in the city of New Orleans. But but is conducted by the Society of Saint Joseph of the Sacred Heart, the Joseph Heart, the Joseph Heart Fathers and Brothers. And you know, one of the things that is huge at Saint Augustine is is giving back to the place where you were grown, where you were formed, where you were nourished, and Wow, I love religious orders. Actually, it was religious order priests who made it very clear that that was not my parish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so St. Peter Cleveland, my home parish, was a, it was a, a Josephite parish for a number of years. And then the Society of St. Edmund, of the Edmundite fathers, uh, Father Michael was an Edmundite. They took over in the 80s, 1980s. And... I've seen all of these religious priests, right? They're prevalent, in the, especially in the Black Catholic community. I have a lot of religious communities who serve. But I was always, there was always something about being at home because I had not seen priests from New Orleans. These were priests from, you know, Father Michael was from Caribou, Maine. Oh, wow. Like northernmost part of the country and ends and up New in, Orleans. And in New Orleans. That's a story in of itself, right? Yeah. The Josephites, you know, you had priests from all over the country, from Baltimore and Alabama, you know, all these things. And but I had not seen a seen many priests from New Orleans. And and so for me, it was I have to give back to these people who have given so much to me. At the same time, you know. To minister to your people, you got to know them, right? You got to, you, you have to be immersed in them. And there's something about New Orleans that it makes it very difficult to leave. Yeah. Yeah. I spent six years in Washington, D.C. and I loved, loved it. Mm-hmm. But I knew but that if I was going to, yeah. if I was going to be a priest, I was going to be a priest in New Orleans. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. My sister's been in D.C. since 2017. Um, and as she frequently reminds us, nobody's from there. A lot of people are there, <laughs> right. but like it's rare that you meet. And there's there's a there's a unique quality. I'll I'll claim Louisiana, like up and down I ten, you know, north of that. 
don't talk to me about them. But like from <laughs> I-10 over, and I say that as somebody with family in central Louisiana, but like for, there's something about that. I'm attached to this place. There's a deep, deep thread of love of the New Orleans community. Every time we visit, right, like the big city, we come to the big city, you get over that bridge in Baton Rouge and you find yourself Ooh. in New Orleans where there's culture, where there's stuff to do. You know, I'm not sure that I could, as a Lake Charlesian, could ever live in New Orleans because it's just too big, even though it's got that, there's a small town vibe and there's a small town feel. And, and we've become very close to many people, many priests from New Orleans and and I always feel like when I walk into the churches of New Orleans, when I walk into a, I mean, even, even the cathedral, which is, you know, there's tourists passing through and there's some palm reading happening in the front. Yeah. Like there's this like, you know, but there's this sense of this is a home to people and there, there's a, a culture and a community of worship. What's really unique about New Orleans, and I've never experienced this anywhere else in the country in the weird position of getting to travel to a lot of different dioceses is that there is a strong Black Catholic community in New Orleans that is vibrant and visible. And mm -hmm. because the Lord is kind, I've been friends with a number of Black Catholic priests in New Orleans who have shown me this. As mm -hmm. somebody who has not experienced that culture in my home diocese, walking into New Orleans Black Catholic churches, and, and that's a distinct thing, right? Like you say Black Catholic churches in some places, and there's almost like this, well, wait, why, why isn't it just a Catholic church? It's like, no, no, there's something different about mm -hmm. this. Can you explain that to people who do not live on I-10, who have not set foot <laughs> in a Black Catholic parish, what that means? I mean, there's an office of, of Black Catholics in the Archdiocese of New Orleans that is very specifically focused on ministering to a community that is visible and vibrant, and there's something culturally different. Can you explain that to us from that 10,000-foot view to the people who would not understand that <laughs> outside of this state? Yeah. So, you know, there's a gift of the church, right, that has been actually part of the culture of the church for uh, quite some time of that of personal parishes. Personal parish is a parish for a specific group of people. And a lot of times, especially in the United States, it was built along a cultural line. Um, mm -hmm. Again, our diocese in New Orleans uh, has this phenomenon of, of very strong culturally based uh, communities. Um, and parishes, um, and it really shaped the landscape of the city. But in a particular way, you have the establishment of Black Catholic parishes, where um, these populations of African Americans were given these particular places, and it kind of it grew out of, 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 of a tumultuous history, if we can be honest, that established yeah. these, these parishes. So, for example, um, I'll look to our neighbors down the street from St. Peter Cleaver and in the, the, the old Tremaine, if you will, St. Augustine, which mm -hmm. is, is the oldest African-American parish in the archdiocese, right, established by African-American Catholics as a place of worship. Well, there were many churches in the archdiocese. Blacks were welcome to, to, to worship, but were relegated to either the back of the parish, or, and we kind of, you can still see them even in the cathedral, what we'll call the slave galleries. And so, so Blacks would worship, would come to Mass and were baptized. Catholics were oftentimes relegated to this sort of second-class experience of the Mass. And while the New Orleans culture, and especially Black culture, a lot saw 
the establishment of, of communities of free persons of color. You have the sort of Creole influence here in New Orleans where you have established families of, of, of Blacks who were not enslaved. There was still this, this culture, this history of, of race and racism and slavery that gave birth to the need for, for Black people to have a place where they can worship Worship without having to feel like they're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And so they established these parishes, established these, these places where they can call their own. Mm-hmm. You know, St. Augustine Parish becomes one of those places and, and within the history of the, of the church, it's particularly the history of the church of New Orleans, right? You have the, the second of, there was established the second community of religious women specifically African-American religious women in our country, the first being the Oblates up in in Baltimore, but the Sisters of the Holy Family, right? Acknowledging that there is a, there was, there there has been, and even still, unfortunately, remnants of this, that you have people of color who want to, to be in the church and want to have a firm place in the church, to be established in the church, to have a rootedness and an ownership in Holy Mother Church. But unfortunately, we're not able to do so because of, of the times and culture. And therefore, did not allow for that to be a hindrance to their discipleship, but took it mm-hmm. upon themselves. And so you have these places that are established. And then as, as the church finds, you know, Re-establishes her, her re-establishes and re-discovers her place within particular cultures and the charism of culture within the Black Catholic community, especially in 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 worship. You begin to see this development, especially after the council, but even before before the council, there was there was this attention to it, allowing cultural elements, be it music, be it vesture, even preaching, that starts to influence Catholic worship in a way that it becomes much much more vibrant, much mm-hmm. more holistic. A lot of times, though, I, I, I like to remind people that Black Catholic preaching is much more, much more reflective of that of the church father. Yeah. If you ever read John Christensen, right, he calls people out for falling, falling asleep during his long homily. Right, but <laughs> no, I, I, my homilies are not as long as his. But <laughs> right, this is a part of the, the, the greater charism of the church. But of course, within the African American community, there there has always been a vibrancy that uh, was attached to spirituality. You mm-hmm. you we see it in we see it in the spirituals, right? Um, we see it in the hush harbor. We see it in, in, in preaching and in teaching. We see it in the charism of a community that was vibrant before even coming to these shores. And hope and that being that vibrancy of spirituality being the thing that carried them through the atrocities of the Middle Passage, the atrocities mm-hmm. of slavery, the atrocities of, of Jim Crow and, 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 and segregation. In racism, all of these things rooted in an, a knowledge that God is real and even more so God is faithful and carries us through. And therefore, when I know that, 
there's no, nothing else I can do but express that and, and yeah. express it with the fullness of my being, not yeah. only in words, but in my body, in, in my emotions, in my intellect, and that it's communicated how, how, how much how better how, how much more important it is than that is communicated in the liturgy as the liturgy itself, the, the celebration of the Eucharist calls forth from us a full offering of self. Yeah. And in, in, a, in a black community, it is in movement and gesture and in song and in, in, in preaching and teaching right. at, and culminated at, at the altar. Yeah. So you just, you bring the full person, right? And there's this belief, and I, I think it's a backwards belief among some in the church that, well, it has to look a very European way, right? Like I bring my full self to the church, and so therefore it needs to look this way. And to look at somebody and say, no, no, that's the only way that you can do it. And it needs to look, uh, I'll, I'll say it, we're, we're all friends here, a white yeah. way, as if that's the right way is to look at people who are part of the body of Christ and say, no, no, you have to, you have to turn off that part of you. You have to not bring the gesture and the song and the movement and, and the preaching and the community component so that it fits into this very specific Western perspective. And that is harmful. Like that's not, that's not the body of Christ. It's not the body of Christ, but it's not the body of Christ. It's not harmful. It's not the body of Christ. It is harmful, but even more so, it's very simplistic, a simplistic way of looking at the patrimony of the church. Right. Because the patrimony of the church, especially within her liturgy, has always been attentive to that of culture. Mm. While in the, in the West, right, we, uh, it has disintegrated in many ways. I mean, it is highly prevalent in the East, right? We look at our Eastern brothers and sisters and, and how culture has shaped the various liturgical rites, but even in the West, right? I, I think a lot of times, especially in these times and conversations about liturgy and culture, I, I have to remind people that even in the West, that multiplicity and tradition, right? And, yeah. and ritual and pride that, for your own culture, even for white folk, right? Mm -hmm. You don't know your history. And so, and right. so far as like, there has always been diversity. If you look at the yeah. churches of Spain, we just look at the churches of Spain and, and the different liturgical rites and liturgical traditions in that area. Well, yes, you know, there's a point in history out of necessity that requires the suppression of cultural expression. And then even before the council, right? We, this this is calling this out. Like it has always been there, and now you're dealing with the church in a situation where you have a people who are not not formed by the spirituality of Europe, right? You have a people who are not even they're not even in, in many ways spirit, people who are, are formed in a spirituality that integrates so many different elements and that gives life to something new in many ways, mm -hmm. but it's something quite ancient and therefore it has a place in the church, but even more so what we do as Catholics, it calls it out of, you know, it would be a, dis it's a disservice to the church 
to suppress people's cultures and their charisms and their expression. Because God, especially mm-hmm. at worship, requires that of us. And right. so for a Black Catholic, Black Catholic expression in the liturgy, which is a spirituality deeply rooted in scripture, mind you, mm-hmm. right? That's one of the beautiful things. Like a lot of times people you know, ask and question, like, why, why would we ever like have gospel music at the liturgy? And I look at them and I was like, well, it's in the name, gospel, yeah. <laughs> right? Gospel music is scriptural music. And yeah. the music of the liturgy is that of sacred scripture, right? If, we, if, if you ever pay attention to the chant, mm-hmm. right? We are chanting the Psalms. We are chanting the prophets. We are chanting the words of St. Paul and just look, I'm just putting it to music. Just like yeah. just like the, the church fathers have done, just like the, you know, those of the 12th and 13th centuries have done. But what we have done as people of God since Jesus Christ, since before Christ, right? The, 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 the singing of scripture, how mm-hmm. we sing it though, yes, it looks different because yeah. it reveals. It reveals even more so that the dynamism of the God that we serve, that yeah. God is not just, you can't box God. And it reveals yeah. so much is the dynamism of who God really is, the God that we serve, the God that we worship. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Father Ajani Gibson. We just want to remind you that this is all part of our Ave Explorer series. Everything we've ever created from the very first series we did back in the fall of 2019 on Mary to now digging into the Mass, everything is available for you over at our website, AveMariaPress.com. You're not going to want to miss any of it. Click down to the link in the show notes. You'll be able to find discount codes for books, a place where you can subscribe to our weekly emails, more information about the Instagram live conversations that we're having. Everything is available for you there. We'd love it if you'd join us. All right, let's get back to the conversation with Father Gibson about diversity and cultural expression. So our podcast episode earlier this week is about kind of the integration of the Novus Ordo and the extraordinary form and how sometimes in our church, we, we move them to, to separate corners and we're like, you have to choose. And it's like, actually, no, like our church is this big tent that or this giant cathedral in which exists so many different expressions and forms of honoring our God. And there is beauty in preference. And there is beauty in the fact that I can walk from one side to the other. I can walk through uh, two square miles of New Orleans and encounter so many different forms of expression on a Sunday morning. And I'm reminded of a conversation with our mutual friend, Father Daniel Green. So we went to, uh, anytime I come to New Orleans, I'll have to come try to Peter Claver next time. It's been a while since we've been there on a Sunday, but we <laughs> try to go to mass with a priest friend of ours, right? Like we're in town. I'm going to go see a priest friend. So for a time, Father Daniel was at Blessed Trinity, which is a parish. And like a lot of places around the country was a combination of a, a few different parishes that had closed for a variety of different reasons. And so now there's this community. And so he texts us, he tells us what time mass is. We show up. We walk in and my husband leans over to me and he was like, are we allowed to be here? And I said, yeah, it's mass. We were, (laughs) there were like four white people in the building. Um, And I said, put yourself in a different perspective. Like, would you want somebody to say that if they walked into our parish, which is, is an objectively more white community, Mm -hmm. uh, 
demographically. Like we have, we have a couple of black Catholic churches within the diocese of Lake Charles, and you can experience this cultural form of worship. So we're sitting there and immediately I looked over time. I was like, the music is going to be lit at this mass. Like it is going to be so much better (laughs) than our Sunday morning, you know, like just opening up the one bread, one cup hymnal kind of thing. But this was the part of the mass that I, I like, it, it moved me to tears. So it was after the sign of peace before this profound moment of like, everybody looks at the blessed sacrament and invites the Lord into their heart. And father Daniel just starts singing a hymn and it's, it's a spiritual, I don't know the words, but there is, I mean, an immediate, the community is just singing in this profoundly beautiful way. So after mass, I asked him about it. We, you know, he takes us to lunch at one of his favorite New Orleans restaurants. We're sitting there and, and he's sharing with us why, you know, this was his ex- explanation of it. And it stayed with me for years. He said, you know, on Sunday, the slaves didn't have to work. They went to, they, they were worshiping together. Um, and so it was an opportunity of community and there were people that you would never see because you were segregated throughout your, the way you worked in the fields. And like, you know, you're separated from your family. And so maybe the only time that you got to sit with people and talk and not be exhausted mm-hmm. was on Sunday. So we're going to take every opportunity to lengthen the honoring of what our, our ancestors got to do, which was sit in mm-hmm. community and sing and hug and, and talk through the pain of these, of these experiences. And I never in my life would have made that connection. But yet here he's telling me this ancestral connection of we don't rush through our worship because this was what our ancestors, this was their one chance to feel human and to have dignity. And so we take every moment of this mass to just sit in in the honoring of our ancestors. And I had, like, I was like, I, I wish that I had known that walking into here, but now I'm so grateful that I know that. And as opposed to, Okay, checking my watch. Like now on Sunday morning, whether I'm in a in a culturally black community or not, I think to myself, this is a moment and an opportunity to rest in the most humanizing thing, which is being in community and worshiping our God, which right. could not be taken from even the person who was wrongfully and evilly enslaved. And it just changed my entire perspective. So the other really amazing thing that I've never experienced in any other church. Mass is over. He does the final blessing to keep people liturgically happy, right? And then he asks everybody to sit down and he starts like announcing joys of the community. Like so-and-so had a new job and that person's great-grandson had been born. And and then we're sitting closer to the back and he went, and my friends, Katie and Tommy are here and they are newlyweds and today is Katie's birthday. And he calls me up, he calls Tommy up. The whole community prayed over us, newlyweds. And then they sang me happy birthday. And I thought to myself, like, we are total strangers to this community, and yet we are being welcomed in to celebrate this thing. We are newly married, and today is the day of my birth, and they are honoring and, and rejoicing in us being here. And I thought to myself, this is this is a mad. We don't need any of these pastoral programs that people are selling in these nice, neat little books. We just need to go spend some time with some Black Catholic priests in New Orleans and look at how they do community. <laughs> And I, that community component and that honoring our ancestors component and that recognition of this is the most humanizing thing that we can do and we're not going to rush it. I, the church would be better if more people knew that, right? Like if more people got out of their comfort zone and went into communities where they might be my, like my husband for a minute, be like, am I supposed to be in here? And recognize that like, this is something that all of us could be a part of. This is our, our patrimony. Like why do people resist that father? It, 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 it's 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 the most Catholic thing, yeah. Right, but but because it doesn't look 
look like we want it to look, right? Or that we've always known it to be, yeah. Right, that, that we've known it to be. And when you think about it, like we have but a, a short span of time within the whole, the, the whole, the whole gambit of salvation history. Like this is the most Catholic thing and why people resist it because it just, it doesn't look like they want it to look. But even more so, it, it's a little uncomfortable. And yeah. I, I, think of, I, I think about comfort a lot of times, especially when it comes down to, to just church. Christ never called us to be comfortable. Right. And how we enter into worship, how we enter into community, how we enter into the faith is not supposed to be comfortable. That was, that's, the, that's the beauty of it, right? The cross was not comfortable. Right. And so when we are coming together, right, as community, as the body of Christ, it's not supposed to be comfortable, right? It's supposed to take us out of ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Therefore, look, when we go to mass, right, we're not looking at time because we're outside of time. Therefore, right. right, we can be there for two hours. And look, there's a, sometimes now the interesting thing is New, New Orleans folks, they, they'll, they're fine with that unless, you know, it's Mardi Gras season or it's jazz <laughs> fest, right? It's like, oh, there's a game. Father, you yeah. know, we got, we got to go to the second <laughs> line. I was like, look, y'all, come on. <laughs> but, you know, that we, we enter into, when we enter into the liturgy, we enter into this space the space that is outside of time. And therefore we give all this glory and honor to God because God is outside of time and we don't have to be worried about it. But at the same time, yes, we rejoice in the community. Why? What is happening in our community? What, what, it, what it, is, it, it is giving life to our community? We rejoice in it because this is who we are as the body of Christ, right? This is what the early church did. Like we gather together, we break bread, we are nourished by, by Jesus Christ the, our true food and we celebrate that and we, we relish in that with one another because that is the sustaining that that's the thing that makes us distinct from the pagans right that we celebrate one another and we celebrate one another in Christ and that element of community is so necessary for liturgy right because we are calling on calling and worshiping with our ancestors in faith right the body of Christ, the communion of saints, right? We talk about this all the time. These are things that we talk about that theologians have pined about century upon century, you know, Aquinas, the Bonaventure, Augustine, you know, all the way down to Paul, right? Mm -hmm. Talk about as a community, we worship the whole church. The language that we use in the back half of the community is that of our ancestors, right? They they are too, they're there too, right? Mm -hmm. Those mothers and fathers who shielded their children from even from the horrors of master are there worshiping with us to the kings and queens of West Africa who right, converted entire communities to that of Catholicism, even before, you know, even before being shackled into chains, to those who even offer their gifts, offer their gifts in the, in the early days of the church. We bring it all together, the church, yeah. the church triumphant, the church militant, the church suffering in a real way. We, this is, it's just, we are just being Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. We're just, we're just being Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. 
there's resistance at times to what some would say is just, oh, like, oh, you're just, you're trying to be diverse or, oh, you know, you're just like trying to get all these different experiences in. But I, I have found that when you break down preconceived notions or when you call out what might be bigotry and racism in somebody's heart, or when you acknowledge the prejudice that a person is carrying around and, and pressure, it, pressure is maybe the wrong word, press or challenge somebody to kind of move beyond what you are carrying around that is prejudice, bigotry, and racism and look beyond something for just a second. You're going to recognize there's more in common than maybe you ever realized. Or you're going to recognize, like you said, this is just the expression of the church from end to end. And and that that spectrum of expression is the most Catholic thing, that it's a universal thing, not a just this one little box that we assume thing. I I think back to what was actually really a heartbreaking thing that happened in our diocese. We had an Indian Catholic priest in our diocese who was assigned to a parish and started making some subtle choices within the the way that the, the church looked. And so we had this Mary statue placed up on a stand on the wall and then had placed into the hand of the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, a rosary that plugged in and was lit. And and so Walking into the church, it was a little jarring because now there's a lit rosary on this wall. But as he shared in a homily, like the first weekend that this was there, was that this was how the Mary statue looked in his home parish in India. And so now he was finally a pastor in a parish and wanted that in this community. And Father, the letters that people started writing to the bishop saying this isn't our motif and this isn't the aesthetic and this doesn't look right. And, and it, the only reason I know some of the backstory is because my husband was the youth minister at the parish at this time. And so like the internal conversations that were happening among the staff and like drove the priest to finally just be like, fine, I'll just take it down. Like this clearly annoys people. And, you know, four or five years removed from that, I think back to that and it's like, are we so stuck in our ways as a church from every side of the proverbial aisle and from every cultural Mm -hmm. expression, are we so stuck in our ways at times that we can't recognize the beauty of someone bringing in, like nobody would ever question a French accordion being played in in a South Louisiana church because like, that's part of our, our cultural expression. But like, we're going to question this, this wonderful Indian Catholic priest who's moved across the world and is bringing this, visual representation that brings him comfort. Like it reminds him of his home that he's not there anymore, but wants to share it with this new home community. And I feel like so many of us probably have stories. Every person has a story of when they've recognized a community being resistant to cultural expression. And I share that because as someone who is in a, I would say New Orleans does it well in some places and New Orleans does it poorly in others. Um, How do people overcome that? Or, you know, we're talking to a, a wide spectrum of folks who tuned into this podcast who might start to identify like they've they've had that resistance or they've they've been the person who wrote that angry letter or they're the person who's sitting here thinking like, OK, does this just mean I have to like go be a, a consumer and like just start going to these churches with all these different cultural expressions to try to like open my perspective? And and then you kind of feel weird about that because you're like, I don't want to I don't want to just like watch like I want this to be an integrated experience. What is your, what is your word of advice to that? So uh, I would say it begins by really coming to understand ourselves, like understanding that we, no matter where we are, are expressing some form of, of culture. We're mm-hmm. offering some, some expression 
that is cultural, that is unique to that particular parish, that particular character, to that particular parish, that particular region, that particular particular state, whatever it may be. And therefore, you're not exempt from cultural expression in the life of the church. But even more so, when we begin to to look at it, look at it that way, then we're able to understand that I am yet a piece of the mosaic, a necessary piece of the mosaic. That as these pieces of glass are brought together, they then make a beautiful this beautiful image that is. We're not even recognize the one piece, but if that one piece was missing, if that one piece were not there, it would take away from the entirety of the mosaic. I mm-hmm. use the image of mosaic because, for, again, for six years, I was in Washington, D.C., and I got to see the, the, the building of the, the Trinity Dome um, yeah. at the Basilica of the National Shrine. I was at the John Paul II Shrine. And, I got to uh, see the mosaics there, and I was always captivated by these little pieces that were so significant that if they were not there, it would take away from the whole. Culture is necessary for the church. And when we begin to embrace that, and, but also realize that it has always been there since yeah. the beginning, from the 12 that Jesus Christ chose a diverse group of of people, even among the tribes of Israel, each having their own distinct culture and charism, it is necessary. Why? Because it reveals something about God. It reveals something about our eternal God. And that's where we have to, we have to approach it from that perspective. That we are, are but vestiges of God and are revealing God in our diversity. And mm-hmm. we're not doing something that's gimmicky. No. Right. We're doing right. something that, that's, that's ultimately a part of God's cre- plan of creation. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, if God did not intend diversity, God would not have created diversity. Right. Right. I'm glad you use the word gimmicky because we, um, I think sometimes there is like this, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go see what they're doing. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to incorporate it. And it feels unnatural or this idea of, like there's this big debate in the life of the church about liturgical dance. And it's like, yeah, it, sometimes it, it's gimmicky if you do a liturgical dance at the start of a youth conference just to say you had it. But if it's from a community of people who are frequently liturgically dancing and it's part of their normal worship, then it's not gimmicky because it's it's an expression of their community. It's not, oh, we're just doing it because we're borrowing it. It's an expression that comes organically. And there's... The gimmick versus organic, I think, is the thing Correct. that is often discerned. Yes. And, and, you know, like uh, the, the choir at my church should not attempt to pull off an African spiritual. It would be, I think, offensive. But it makes perfect sense that when I go to Sacred Heart and I hear them sing Rain Down and they have the African bongo in the background of it, because that is something that father introduced years ago. It, it feels right. And there's nothing wrong with me being in that church where it feels right. Does that make sense? Am I saying that correctly? Again, the organic expression of the people, right? 
you know, at Mass, we are worshiping God, and God calls us, like, you know, one of the beautiful parts of Mass is, you know, the offertory, but we offer our gifts, right? You know, we say, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice is yours. And now, oftentimes at that point, I ask, like, what is, what am I actually bringing to the altar, right? Yeah. And when I look at the at worship, like, what we bring to the altar is our, our authentic self, right? Our organic self. What we're bringing to the altar is the best of my culture, the best of who I am. And therefore, I'm going to bring the best of my music. I'm going to be yeah. the, bring the best of my, my speech, right? I'm mm-hmm. going to bring the best of my movement. Right. I found it fascinating. So when I was studying abroad, I did a semester in Rome and I went the first time I went to mass at St. Peter's and communion time came. And, you know, the Exterior's Day was done and then the priests come to the, the communion rail and it, you just see people just rush to the yeah, communion. They just rail. get up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I was, I, I was scandalized. Yeah. But then yeah. I stepped back and I, re- like, I, I thought about it. I was like, my American sensi- sensibility. Right. We make lines. Is, we make <laughs> lines. Yeah. Right? That is, that, that is an, a culture. That's something very cultural. That's a cultural thing. Yeah. Whereas, like, in Italy, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to rush towards Jesus himself. Yeah, yeah. How beautiful it is that at communion. It's very Italian. Now, yeah. It's a very Italian thing. You, you know, sister is going to elbow you in, in, in the side of the stomach to get to Jesus. You know what? I was like, you know what, sister? I can appreciate that. Yeah, I that's can you. appreciate that. You, you, yeah. you will knock somebody out to get to Jesus. I was like, you know what? Yeah. Th- th- there's something biblical about that. But like yeah. that, that's cultural. It's authentic. Yeah. Now, what I'm saying, that doesn't call for an allowance of any and everything. Because not everything... In, in our cultures are appropriate right. Right. for right. what God calls for us. You know, a lot of people don't use the phrase, I come as I am, you know, yeah. the, you know, I, I come as I am. And, and that's a justification to just wear anything to church, for example. Right. Like, right. no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Like the Lord requires the best of us, the authentic mm-hmm. of us, the beautiful of us. And if the beautiful of us as, as a black Catholic community is this beautiful offering of movement towards the book of the gospel and procession, mm-hmm. right? This accompaniment of the procession with movement because we're moving, offering ourselves. What do we offer all of ourselves as we lay, bow down physically before mm-hmm. the altar, the place where heaven and earth meet that communicates something about who it is and what it is that we're doing, not drawing mm-hmm. our attention to ourselves then. Like mm-hmm. our, authentic, our, our organic expression should be an expression of what it is that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, is an encounter with Almighty God. Yeah, yeah. So we could keep going, Father. And I'm sure <laughs> people, are, people are wondering, normally I keep these to 30 minutes, but I just enjoy talking to you so much. Because I think there's so much into this topic and there's so much, you should write a book about this. There's so much that needs to be delved into. We've ended every podcast this season by asking our guests, priests and lay people, what your favorite part of the mass is. Maybe as a almost not quite baby priest, you've got a couple of weeks left to, to own that baby priest title, but, or even just as, you know, once upon a time, a lay person sat in the pews, your favorite part of mass where 
you just if you could just kind of freeze that moment for a little while longer, what would that moment be? Especially as a baby priest, um, being able to 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 get to the the institution narrative and be able to to say the words of our Lord on my own lips, as unworthy as I am, is such yeah. a powerful moment for me. One of my favorite moments on mass is the Etchianus Day, and so at Peter Cleaver, it's sung, and so I, I'm going to sing it to you, and yeah, and then just describe this this moment for me. And so we get to the Etchianus. I've just prayed um, my private prayers, you know, for the Lord to free me from my sin and from every evil, and make me worthy to receive the Lord, receive Him, and then I then I sing. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. And the people respond, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. But only say the word and my soul, my soul shall be healed. But only say the word and my soul, my soul shall be healed. It brings tears to my eyes. Each and every time, because what not only am I saying the words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God, that's your youngest day. But I, I'm holding our Lord, presenting Jesus Christ himself to the people of God. And together we recognize that we are not worthy to approach this altar, but because God himself says it. We are made new. We are made whole. Mm. And the, the spirit of singing that. Singing is very Catholic, y'all. Right? We love yeah. to chant everything. If you haven't looked at the missile, the, the, missile, the missile has a lot of music in it. If we were only sing what we're supposed to sing. That's another, that's another podcast. Amen. But <laughs> the, 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 at, at that moment, to have your heart, like, and my heart is just always moved. Mm-hmm. Like, and that expression that I'm not worthy the Lord says come and to receive me come behold me come eat eat my flesh drink my blood so that you may have life in you mm-hmm. that moment is just captured yeah in a real way, and I yeah. love, and I, I love the tune of how y'all sing it. Um, it uh, it reminds me of John Baptist, not Baptiste, John Baptiste, uh, yeah. <laughs> your fellow alum from uh, yeah, we, uh, from, from Saint Augustine High School, as, as Rose likes to call him, the fun man, because we listened to him on the way to school. <laughs> uh, one of these days, I'm going to interview him because he's he's Catholic. He uh, yeah. he owns he owns that faith. He talks about it. Steve Col- the interview he did with Stephen Colbert. Um, after he won all those Grammys, it, it, there was kind of this shared moment of like, just a couple of Catholic dudes talking about Jesus. Um, thank you for sharing that, Father. It's beautiful. We are going to, we're coming. 
to New Orleans in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so we're going to, I'm going to text you. We're going to hang out. Yeah. Um, we're going to come to mass. Um, we're coming to see a play. We're going to stick around for Sunday mass. Uh, we got some grandparents babysitting the kiddos. So Amen. father, where can folks follow you on social media and, and learn more from you? I know you're on so there. You, yeah. So you can check me out on Instagram. You can also catch me out on Facebook. Um, so on, on Instagram, my uh, handle is rev dot father fr dot akg on instagram like i was really excited when i got to, to change that it changed from mr to father i was like yeah. yeah yes yeah all of our guys back here they have to go by padre on their facebooks because you know facebook got rid of the father title yeah. years ago uh, and i'm like so, you all were just like waiting to go for the padre or the pater <laughs> the way it goes yeah, look hey be a witness out there <laughs> Amen. Amen. Father, thanks so much for taking the time. I'm really grateful. You're very welcome. It has been a joy and an honor and a privilege. And one of the things I loved about this conversation with Father Ajani was that he was so willing to share his heart, so willing to share his experience, so willing to offer insight into what he has experienced as a Black Catholic priest in a diocese that has a lot of Black Catholics represented and participating. And the, the great gift, the, the beauty of the diversity and the cultural expression that we can find within worship, to recognize that not every single thing has to look the exact same every single place, that cookie-cutter masses, cookie-cutter worship actually harms us, and that instead, finding a, a, a way to express our full selves in the most perfect form of prayer, in the Mass itself, is really the only way to flourish. I was really grateful he took the time. You can follow him on social media. Like he said, we have the links down in our show notes. We'd love it if you would join us for our entire series. Click on over to AveMariaPress.com. You'll find everything there, including a form you can fill out with your questions about the Mass. Father Blake Britton will be joining us on Instagram Live in just a couple of weeks to sit down and really dig into the, the great beauty of the Mass. You're going to want to submit those questions and then tune in live Follow Ave Maria Press on Instagram so you don't miss anything. Submit your questions so Father Blake can dig into them with all of us. We're so grateful that you listened. We'll be back later this week with a conversation about the Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo Mass. We hope you join us then. Thanks so much for being with us this week. We'll see you soon. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.